Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Lauren Nushi, co-founder and creative director of 8-Year-Old Apari. While brands are increasingly banning animal-derived materials, including fur, Apari has focused on ethical fashion from the get-go. It's now sold at retailers including Saks, Nordstrom, and Elise Walker, plus it's attracted investors, including Carly Kloss. I wanted to ask Lauren about the brand's growth trajectory and recent rebrand, which included overhauling the e-commerce site. I also wanted to inquire about its customer base. Is Gen Z really the demo demanding sustainable ethical styles? Welcome, Lauren. Hi, guys. Hi, um, Jillian. Nice meeting you. So happy to have you. Let's just start at the beginning for those who don't know the brand well. Eight years ago, 2016, I think maybe you hit the ground a little faster in 2018. But what was happening? Formerly, you and your co-founder, I saw, kind of both have this high fashion past at Louis Vuitton and Saint Laurent. Um, what was going on? Yes. Um, so it's so funny that you mentioned 2016, because I feel like for me, the brand really took off in 2018. But I think it's important to share with you know the world that for us, it, it took us a little longer. So back in 2016 and before, um, myself and my other co-founder, Amelie, we both worked um, in the luxury uh, industry. For Amelie, it was in the finance side. For myself, it was in retail. And I had a very short experience as a merchandiser at Saint Laurent. And so at the time, uh, you, me and Amelie, sorry, reconnected because we were both introduced in Boston. So I actually did all my um, education in Boston, studied business, and Amelie at the time was was working there. Fast forward 2016, me and her reconnected um, in Paris and we're both sharing our, you know, nine to five corporate job, I will say struggles. And we felt it was the time for us to create something that was not only disruptive a little bit for the industry, but just bringing something new um, and different to to the U.S. market. Um, So that's how Aperi came about in 2016. Fun fact about the name, uh, we had a lot of glass of wine <laughs> and we came up, we're like, how can we call the brand and make sure we are paying homage to our French heritage? So we came up with Apari, which is apparel and Paris and Apari um, came about in, in 2016. That. So am I correct that you moved from Paris to New York to start the brand? And why was that move necessary? Yes. So between 2016 and 2018, uh, I actually live in a luggage. So I was in between Paris and New York, really living the entrepreneur New York dream. I think both family and I were very driven on making something happen. However, it wasn't the easiest thing. So Here's what happened. When we launched Apari in 2016, our initial mission was to bring affordable, conscious French fashion to the U.S. market. And we thought it would be as easy as just launching a Shopify website and, you know, just aiming for customers to just come in and just shop and this will be it. Uh, the truth is, it did not happen. We did launch May 2016 Apari.com and we had a very nice, large selection of French affordable fashion, but we had zero customer. Um, we are, I believe, both of us come from retail and entrepreneur background from our families. So we were 
you know, not uh, discouraged yet. So what we did during this year, and that's why 2018 was really a turning point for us, we decided to do as many fairs, pop-ups, you know, um, small events in New York City, city sorry, um, and selling the, the product that we have. So during that time, uh, definitely was in between places, finally moved in 2018 after we did um, this pop-up in Williamsburg, the winter of 2017. And why this pop-up was for us a game changer is because this is when we had this ha moment. Uh, long story short, uh, part of our assortment in the pop-up, we had that one for fur coats in four colorways. And I think I will never forget that. <laughs> um, me and Emily were both in, uh, in the store every day, hustling, trying to connect, spreading the word about our brand. But what we really saw is a true interest from customers for this faux fur coat. And we could see the emotional collection. We could see and get the feedback from customers telling us how no one is doing faux fur this way. They couldn't find such a high quality at such an itinerable price point. So for us, it's starting slowly clicking at the time. And then I think it was January 18, so right after the new year, we were still, the pop-up was open. It was very cold in New York. We had the chance um, to meet the fashion director of Bloomingdale's. She just came in into the store and she bought two coats. So we were very excited, just talking, not really putting the dots together. And at the end of, you know, meeting with her and telling her our story, she sent us an email saying that Bloomingdale's would love to see our collection for market um, 2018. Okay. So just, yeah. And so that's how things came about. And we had this Biha moment. And in 2018, we decided to rebrand at the time. And we decided to just focus on one mono product. And I think that's where we've gained uh, recognition since then. And we're able to, to grow uh, the brand and the business. Right on. Well, I could see that being a hole in the market where either you have fake fur, faux fur, and it's very mm -hmm. maybe costumey or it feels gross. <laughs> and then you've got yes. the luxury fur that's just like a no-no, obviously. For sure. I think for us, just to touch up on that, we we understand and you mentioned, you know, in your intro about the Gen Z and we, we just saw a movement that started with obviously the food industry and the cosmetic industry. And Amelia and I quickly understood that something needed to happen in the fashion industry. And I think you mentioned luxury and a lot of luxury brands have paved the way. But when we came to fur, it, it was just not really done. And I think it's because of how it was approached. For us at the time, we didn't want to create faux fur coats that looked real. We wanted to come up with a fabric that felt different, that was still warm, um, but that has a new whole outlook um, when it comes to fur. And that's why we, we created this, this fabric called Plush, which is actually a take on plush and peluche in French. And we actually trademark it. And we really built, at least in 2018, our first collection was one. We had one coat in 12 colors at a time and it, it just worked. And I okay. think that was a good learning for us to yes. do less, but do it right. When it came to being able to nail down who, what manufacturer you'd, you could work with to make a go of this vision, were those your prior work experience? Did that come in handy or how did you find out how to do a faux fur coat 
in a way that you were going to be happy with? Was it a lot of research? Uh, yes and no. So I think the first thing that I needed is to be bold. And that's why uh, since until this day, one of our brand pillars is being bold. I think that comes from uh, Amelia and I just, you know, quickness to to have been able at the time to to be reactive and show this collection. Um, so what happened is after the pop-up, I did have this sourcing that one for fur coats. So I don't have a design background, but I have a strong sensibility for product. So what I did, I just went back to Paris. I met with the shop that I bought the coat and I sold them the, the story and the situation. I told them, hey, you know, like I have a market in the U.S. It can be very big. This is what we got from the pop-up. Um, I don't have a designer. I don't have a team. What I have is potential buyer interested in buying this product. And I would love to co-design with your team um, a small line. And until this day, we still work with this factory. And I was very lucky that they give us a chance. And that's really how it started. Yes. How did you land on the price point? I mean, margins, obviously, what you're paying for the, yes. the, the items versus what you're selling it for. But like, why, why did that click, would you say? So back to 2016, 17, 18, um, Amelia and I, you know, created a party with just our savings. So bootstrapping was everything. So what I mean by that, we had zero marketing dollar. So the strategy of hours to break into the market and really disruptive was to not only come with a high quality for product, but at a very uh, competitive price point. So for us, that was very important. And that was a choice that we made. We thought it will give more chance to the product and more interest from buyers. So with the, you know, negotiating with, with the factory and understanding this will be a long-term project, we were able to get a very good pricing from our factory in order for us to, to retail uh, the code at what I would say at the time was probably a third of the retail price of any um, competitors. Fantastic. Well, funding, um, fundraising didn't come into play until, uh, so you launched in 2016, I think around 2020. Was it during the pandemic? What happened? <laughs> oh, I do believe we have in St. French, like a nice little star uh, above my head. So what <laughs> happened with, with funding? That is something that we were really not uh, interested at first, to be honest. Um, however, our men, um, our men, main, sorry, investor, was a client of ours. She shopped the line on Moda Oper and D and she kept knocking at our door, even though we didn't have an office, to be honest. But she will keep coming to us when you guys are ready. Let me know. I really believe in what you do, etc. So I guess, I don't know if Amelia and I knew maybe a pandemic was about to happen. I promise we did not. But we understood quickly that in order to scale our business, having a strong project is great, but we needed to build a team and we needed to invest into our direct-to-consumer platform. So we opened a conversation with our lead investor and we felt very comfortable. And lucky enough, we closed our um, seed um, investment literally maybe two weeks. Uh, before the the pandemic uh, happened. 
Oh, how great. And that was the round that it was around $3 million. And tell me about- It was $3 million, yes. yes. Tell me the intention for that money because you talked about building direct your direct channels. And mm-hmm. um, at one point, Facebook and Instagram was definitely a source of a lot of traffic and, and revenue. Did that work for you as well? Yes. So we had on our seed, um, our pitching deck, the three main things we had for us when we wanted to raise money was definitely building that DCC platform. So like you mentioned, uh, we needed a lot of funding to scale and to acquire customer. Um, the second thing, but did not happen, was to actually open a showroom retail. So our big goal pre-COVID was to get a space that since we were still a very small team at the time, we were maybe four people, uh, four to six people. So we wanted to open a space um, for people to be able to touch the product because clearly the quality and the touch and the softness of our fur is really what makes the product so special. So that was um, a second uh, goal of the founding. And the third one was building the team. I think another big learning we quickly understood is we, we cannot do this uh, on by ourselves. Yes, for sure. Who were those first couple of hires? What positions were helpful to take you to the next level? Yes. So I remember at the time, I think for us, the first hire and something I will always be grateful for um, was a graphic designer. Oh, yeah. We needed a very strong graphic designer to get all those uh, ads um out, I can tell you that, and making sure the, the website was always looking elevated, which is something I take a lot of pride since the beginning. Photography, imagery was something that was very important for us because, we, again, we needed the project to, 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 to be shown in a way that I think uh, would make the customer interested into a brand they've never heard of. So a strong graphic designer was one of the higher at the time. Uh, a wholesale manager also, of course, to be able to support us uh, for our wholesale expansion in the U.S. Um, I think that was very key. And until this day, this person worked with, her from, with us for many, many years. Um, and then a third person was a customer service, which also was um, very key for us. So those were, and that's very interesting because if you think of that, it's very junior level, but that's why we felt that we needed at the time so Amelia and I could work on the bigger strategy. And then back to your question about building our DTC, we brought in, um, I believe, early 2021, um, a growth marketing manager, which was definitely a game changer as far as establishing our uh, DTC business. No doubt. In terms of getting the attention of the U.S. customer, did that require um, working with influencers, maybe getting your coats on some celebrities? Was that a big part of it or maybe less than I would think? No, of course, that was a big part of it. And I think until this day it is, I think having working with the new ways of doing uh, digital marketing was key. And that's something that we were, I think, tapped in since the beginning of PR, uh, VIP seating, influencer seating has been part of our overall strategy, I think, for us and for a long time. And until this day, we like to do it organically. Uh, we think that, again, this product really speaks for itself. And we had a lot of success doing this organically. So that is something that I um, always recommend um, to anyone, you know, starting yeah. their brand. 
For sure. Tell me about how you're choosing retail partners and like, were you exclusive at Bloomingdale's out of the gate? And um, is that also key for awareness of the brand getting in many doors? I think last I read you're in 500 or 600 doors. That we 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 refined our our distribution okay. since we started, but I will be transparent and honest. 2018 for us, we would have sold a coat to anyone who wanted a coat. <laughs> I think we were so excited; it, it felt like a dream. It was really unexpected how fast everything snowballed. So. When we got the email from Bloomingdale's, um, Amelia and I figured if Bloomingdale's is interested, I'm sure there's other majors that might be interested too. So we were lucky enough in 2018 to right away um, work with Saks Fifth Avenue, which is another big account of us, and we're very proud. And back to your question, imagine not really having any marketing budget for us. Being able to have our product in those doors was something that, help us grow our visibility and credibility as a brand that I think it would have taken us maybe years for us to be able to, to do it with just our DTC um, business. So I think having a good mix and understanding both, I think, is key for any brand these days. And fast forward now, of course, we're being very much more selective and we have definitely um, lessened the, the number of doors that were currently sold in the U.S., but also in the rest of the world. Yes. Tell me about your expansion beyond outerwear. First of all, coats, outerwear, is that a large, mm, I don't know, over 50% of your sales to the state, far more than 50% sales? Or how would you describe the breakdown? Yes. So the breakdown is very easy. So as of today, hardware is 50% of our business. And then 25% is winter accessories and the other 25 is home. So for us, again, in 2018, it was a strategic decision to focus on one product. And even until this day, we feel like we have so much more to do and we still want to grow the brand and and really be the go-to at our brand when it comes to conscious outerwear. So that's something we take a lot of um, pride. Um, but in the breakdown that I mentioned to you, um, there is something that really for us came very organically and unexpected was home. Yes. When did you launch that? When everybody was hibernating over the pandemic? <laughs> yes. And I was the first one hibernating. So I have to share that story because it's really the truth. And it's I found it so funny. So I'm clearly from France. And when COVID hit, I had just moved more or less to New York. So I had to make a decision, stay in quarantine in New York in my teeny Brooklyn studio and, you know, make sure my business survived, which was everything uh, to me and still is until this day. Paris, my baby. Uh, I'll move back to Marseille and, and pray for the best. So I decided to stay in Brooklyn. And so we, at the time, we were still designing a collection uh, but from my own uh, studio apartment. So space, very small, and for first sample, very big. Um, so one day I just had a, a plush coat uh, on myself, just feeling defeated about, you know, everything going on in the world. And I start petting myself with the coat over me. And obviously I had this idea, wow, how nice would it be if I had a blanket in our plush fabric, white you know, you're like, this is, seems so obvious, but maybe let me see with our factory if we have any excess fabric. Um, 
and, and see if they can make me one. So that was uh, around May or June 2020. I received the first sample, a double-sided plush uh, blanket, and I thought this was the the best project ever. And since then, we we launched the category, and it is 25% of our total revenue, which is pretty significant for us because. We do consider ourselves a fashion brand, but we happen to have a lifestyle collection, which is very trendy. And it seems like more and more actually fashion brands are doing that. So we're very proud of this project. And all in all, I think it makes our brand even more inclusive than it is already. And it is a great um, entry point as well um, for any new customer. So it worked out. It's so fun. Like the, the pillows, the... The slippers are like, stick out my mind. Like these little fur little guys. Oh my gosh. Everybody check them out. They're so fun. Um, But I would think, is your outerwear business and your outerwear accessories business, is it maybe more seasonal and you you see a lot of sales in Q4 and Q1 and maybe this home category will help kind of balance it out or safeguard from those lower sales times? No, for sure. We are very much a, a seasonal business and that is something until now we have very much embraced um, just because, again, we're building a brand from scratch. So we wanted to stay true to what we're known for. And so it's been hard for us um, in full transparency to think outside those materials. And and again, the goal is really to build, uh, continue building strong foundation for We Are The Brand. So I think for us, home is definitely adding, right, a new stream of revenue and it's been doing very well. But in the next, you know, couple of years, and this is definitely part of, the board and then the goals is, is for us to continue now this mission that has evolved, by the way, since 2018. You know, our mission is not just to bring um, affordable, conscious outerwear. I think our goal is to be able to bring to the market, you know, a full-blown um, lifestyle assortment of conscious and, and itinerable projects. So stay tuned. We'll be right back after this quick break. Tell me about marketing your ethical materials and your ethical products. Like, how are you able to communicate that in a way that isn't overwhelming or too wordy? You're still able to, I don't know, make your brand appear, which it is, luxury and fashion with, without like diluting it with a bunch of info. <laughs> I know that's a very good, I mean, question. I think that's something we still every day want to make sure. How do we communicate, you know, between being bold and playful and elevated, but also conscious. How do you share this piece of information to customer without also almost boring them or trying to convince them that, you know, we're doing something different? So I think for us, it's been quite settled and yeah, settled in the, in the way we, we share what, what we do and who we are. So the most effective way, it's been obviously through social media, through partnership that we've done, um, but also on our packaging. That is something that's a very easy yet efficient way to highlight what is so special about our product. And it's been working as part of our rebrand. So there is this conscious pillar that is definitely um, a pillar and values that we're exciting to keep pushing. And one initiative we launched in 2022 of April is our own reselling platform, so Ria Perry, which I think for us was definitely a way, in a non-way, 
to continue showing to our customer and potential new customer that we're taking this seriously, but we're not trying to brainwash you in in any way that greenwash you, not brainwash you, sorry. <laughs> um, in any way that, you know, sometime uh, it can be done. For sure. So that move definitely signaled what your values are. And I know that in the past, maybe even to this day, you have partnered with uh, rental companies like Rent the Runway and Newly, And also you've collaborated with some very impressive brands, but also the fact that you collaborated with PETA. I mean, hello, PETA's not going to collaborate with a brand <laughs> that, that doesn't stand by their own values, right? Yes, no, for sure. That was a really fun one. And any brand collaboration we did uh, until this day, we're very grateful for. And they were all meaningful to the brand and myself for, for different reasons. So we're very grateful for these. Amazing. Well, beyond the fur, um, tell me about other materials that like, um, I've heard about the challenges of like scaling some of the options with, with leather, for example. And, and I know you're doing some amazing things with cashmere. Um, tell me about, I guess, navigating that world, finding the right material that you're going to be able to use and afford and people are going to love. Um, yeah. Tell me about some of those breakthroughs. Yes. So since we launched, since for Fur for us, we obviously are not only a conscious and animal-free brand, but we're trendy, right? So looking at trends uh, forecast is, is very key. And we always want to bring a product that you're not just going to purchase because it's conscious, but also because it's high quality and, and trendy. So far as the, we have four core fabrics that we own. So the first one being plush that we discussed, our recycled um, for fur. And then the other two uh, outerwear materials that's doing very well for us is our booklet, uh, which is a faux shearling that's 100% recycled. And that's something that has been doing very well because it's still very soft and it's sharing that same um, warmness of fur, but in a different way. So that's something that has been doing very well for us, especially in the mixed media group, which has been a, a huge trend. And that's something we are expanded for 2024. And the second fabric, as you mentioned, is, is vegan leather. So vegan leather for us has been, I will say, a challenge until this year because we've seen a lot arise um, in the market. And it was very key for my product and design team to source uh, something a little bit more novel. So I will tell you this, but we're very excited to launch in 2024 uh, what we've called Sans Leather. So it's an alternative to genuine leather, but it's, make, it's made of recycled polyester. So we felt like this was the perfect um, new fabric for us to bring to the market because it's not just virgin plastic, but again, as a brand, we really think that through innovation, we don't have to use genuine leather. So that's a very exciting one um, for us as that's well. That's great. That's great. We talked collabs. I know um, Mensur Gabrielle has been a recent collaborator and DVF early on. Whoa, baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, how, how has that worked to, again, um, acquire new customers? And uh, are you looking to do more collabs to kind of break through the noise, make some buzz on the marketing front in the, in the coming year? So brand collabs for us um, pre-rebrand were very key because we were looking for brand collab that will establish us into the market and build that credibility. So you mentioned the DVF collab 
For us, it was just amazing, not only because it's an iconic American brand, but also it's a female co-founder. And her story was in a way similar to ours. She started selling a wrapped dress in a luggage. I was running around with my luggage with offers. So for, for me, at least, this was really a dream come true. Um, and I feel like this definitely bring, again, credibility to the brand very quickly, which, again, pretty amazing. Um, another collab that I think for us was also iconic was the Juicy Couture collab that we did to celebrate their 50th year anniversary of the tracksuit. So we reinvented their tracksuit in faux fur, um, which has been really fun. So these for us are two milestones and it was really bringing our faux fur to those iconic heritage American brand. Fast forward now, um, we did the Mentor Gabrielle collab, which was also amazing because through this collab, we were able to bring to the market our first ever Apple leather coat, which I think for us was um, a big milestone. And it was just very cool to be able to pair it with an Apple uh, leather handbag. So that was a great collab for 2023. For 2024, um, so since the rebrand, the TMI did a lot of soul searching and, and thinking. And I think for us, the direction is to actually recenter to our own brand. Now that we have reestablished uh, the foundation of the brand. So that I think what we're not that I think that I know our strategy is going to be for the next couple season is to really recenter through our own channels, keep focusing on building our social media presence, tapping more into TikTok. That is something for us that is definitely a big challenge and, and a big goals and continue doing local partnerships, which is something that we have found actually way more impactful than bigger scale uh, brand collabs. Oh, tell me about that. What, what does that look like? Or what would be an example? Yes. So I can tell you a couple that we did. And we did some collab thinking, how can we actually talk more about our conscious pillar in a way that is thinking outside of the box? So the first thing that came to my mind was food, right? When you think of vegan, animal-free, I think like food is, is something that's pretty known um, overall, right? So... We were looking around with the team, you know, like brainstorming, and we all put together our favorite place in New York. One that kept, you know, coming to the table was this amazing Brooklyn bakery called L'Appartement Foref, fellow French um, people. So um, I was mini like, croissant we, cereal. <laughs> yes, mini croissant cereal. It's pretty amazing. I thought this, I mean, they are the, they really are the best and it's really good. And so we basically approached them and asked them if we could make a vegan croissant, which I think was their first reaction was, how can we make a croissant without butter? They thought I was a little crazy, but we were able to make it. And that's a really an example of a small partnership that really forced, we gained a lot of followers. We were, we were able to do um, an event at their location in Brooklyn, which allowed us to speak with customer, existing customer, new customer, and it, it really shown how small this collab may have seen, but because they have a very buzzy, right, 
um, and cold following on social, we actually saw amazing results. So that was just one example. And that's something that feels fun, light, that still allow us to convey a message and, and our values. But again, without making it so um, obvious to, to the customer. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. It really reflects what we've been saying about what's working in the influencer world, where it's not necessarily the biggest influencer. It's the one with the engaged, authentic audience. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Are you already, um, speaking of influencers, you mentioned TikTok. Have you launched on the on the platform? And, and what's where are you seeing early buzz? What's working? Where are you kind of landing on there? Yes. So we have launched our TikTok platform. That is um, something that the team is very dedicated in growing. We've seen a lot of success when we actually create content that is mimicking or mirroring, like mirroring a TikTok trend, uh, which has been interesting. But again, for us, we approach TikTok in a very playful and bold way, which are pillars of the brand. But we know that based on our current core customer, she's more an Instagram girly than a TikTok. So that is something we're trying to layer through our social strategy as one of our goal um, is definitely to tap more into the, the Gen Z uh, demographic. For sure. Well, you talked about focusing more on the brand itself and your own channels. Tell me about what this rebrand entailed. Um, I think there was a logo, Zhuzh. I think the website got a, a little couple changes there. What changes yes. were needed and why? So we decided to do this brand refresh because we had marked the five years anniversary, if you consider a Paris launching in 2018. Yes. <laughs> um, and I felt like not only internally for the team, but I think for our customer, we needed to reset the tone and really rebuild, rebuild that foundation. Because as I, as I mentioned before, we, we did gain recognition for colorful for fur coats, but of course the, the end goal for us is to be known for conscious fashion. So I think. When you have a new goal and a new strategy, you know, you have to go through your entire business plan. And of course, part of this is your visual identity. So like you mentioned, we evolved our logos. So our logo pre-rebrand was very bold, right? And loud, which is again, one of the pillars of the brand. But as we've grown and as we've get to know, right, our customer a little more and, and better, we understand that yes, our customer is bold and yes, she's confident, yet she's elevated, right? She's a fashion lover. Um, she's minimal in her own way. So we wanted that to be reflected through our word mark. Um, so that was step one. And then the second step is the website redesign, as you mentioned. Um, same thing. We wanted something a little bit more minimal so that the product could shine. We wanted a look and feel that felt elevated. So we could even, you know, speak more on our French heritage. Um, however, we still wanted to make sure that the customer experience was uh, streamlined and, and very easy to shop at, you know, as any gold for any brand. Um, another thing as part of rebrand that customer might not see now, but we'll see in 2024 because we're on a different calendar when it comes to design and project, um, but we, we work also our design. So we're very excited because for 2024, fall 2024, 
we really, uh, with my lead des uh, designer, Abby, we, we really took a long time um, looking into our bestsellers and our color palette and our materials. Like I was mentioning earlier, we're relaunching a lot of updated materials and we're very excited to be able to bring uh, a fresher and more um, a, re right, a redesign of, of our product in a way that we feel um you know, will align um, with that that new uh, rebrand. Yes. Would you say you're on your own um, production calendar when you talked about new product? Is it about mm, twice a year collection or I, I don't know? Well, again, for us, we're very seasonal, but we have a lot of categories. So we do one main market, right, uh, a year, but we have many collections to launch. So it, it feels actually almost like we're designing more... Um, than one collection. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you plan to open your own? You've had pop-ups. You have much presence. You saw the power of allowing people to touch, feel the yes. product. Do you want your own stores? Is that a longer-term vision? Does that require more fundraising? Yes. Um, so pop-ups for us are very important. That's how we started. And like you said, that's how we connect with people. Feedback until this day we take very seriously. Uh, when it comes to product, um, but also experience. So we just had a pop-up in New York, actually, um, in Soho. It went so well, and it was really a blast to be able to get back to pop-ups since, since COVID. Opening a flagship is definitely a goal of ours. I think for us, we're taking our time now that we relaunched, we rebranded. This year, 2024, is making sure that the new collection, the new identity is is uh, communicated and, and shared with our existing, but also new targeted customer. And I think from there, hopefully, with maybe a, a little bit help with funding or not, we will be able to open our first flagship in, in New York City. Amazing. Tell me about, can you share a little bit about the size of the company? You went from four employees to how many now? And I read on like... I think it was a WWD article that you were going to generate 20 million in volume in five years to support the next phase of growth. But yeah, tell me where, where we are now and, and about the growth to date. So we're based in New York City. The team in the New York office, we're about 18 as of today. Nice. And then we have a small, yes, we have a small office in uh, France and we have a team of four. So very small, but very great to have them in, in Europe, definitely helping the expansion. As far as revenue, so yes, our goal is the next five years to get to the 20 million. This is our next um, threshold, you say, yes. or like our next, uh, yeah. So that's really the goal. And we're building right now this strategy to get there. And we feel very confident we're going to be able to do it with the expansion of the category, but also markets. Um, so very exciting. That's Couple very years. exciting. What would you say is yes. kind of, I mean, the economy is all over the place. What would, is that it may relate, but what's challenging you now? Or what's kind of the thing that's weighing on your mind these days in terms of, yeah, a challenge, a hurdle for the brand? Of course. Um, I will say overall the state of retail. I think we have to be honest with ourselves as an industry, right? It's it's definitely suffering so we're ve we're very happy to still see growth and and potential, but I think that would be a concern. And the second one um, is definitely the seasonality of our business. 
Um, that is something that for us we've seen as a strength until now because small teams, right, means um, we, we want it to be as efficient as, as impactful in doing one thing and doing it right. So I think for us right now is growing in a way that we want to keep right this um, reputation, I will say. We want to keep our core business and we take so much pride about what we do. But hey, we feel strong that we can bring newness and we can bring a new line of product that doesn't have to be a coat um, or a blanket. Yes. Watch this space. What else can we expect in 2024 <laughs> from the brand? Yeah. So you mentioned earlier Kashmir. So for us, uh, we did a soft launch with PETA a couple of years ago in a very small way. And we've, we've got a lot of feedback. So it took us a little while, um, but we're very excited in 2024. Uh, in Q2, we'll be launching um, our new alternative to Kashmir called Do Knit. And we were able to develop, yes, with our factory, a yarn that is as, as soft, um, stretchy and high quality as cashmere in a recycle, um, like it's a recycle yarn, sorry. Um, so that's something that we're very excited about is to reintroduce that and make sure that we focus um, on this uh, knitwear category. And we feel very confident that our customer um, is going to be able to layer it up with, you know, later in, in the season with our outerwear. So that's one exciting thing for us. Wonderful. And then the second um, exciting thing is our expansion in Europe. Um, we just closed a pop-up that we did at Le Bon Marché. Oh, that was very successful and that went very well. So for us, this is definitely encouraging and we're looking forward um, to continue entering new uh, countries. Um, so that's very exciting too. Great. So U.S. right now is the majority of the business. You're seeing growth in Europe, maybe anywhere. Where do you want to go from there? Are you looking at the Asian market at all? Yes, uh, we already have some key accounts with Asia. I think due to the pandemic, it definitely we took a step back. But for us, Asia is also top of mind. And we're actually very excited to meet again with the buyers in person in Paris next week. Oh, great. Um, so definitely um, Asia is, is top of mind as well. Wonderful. Well, excited to see all you do. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. This was great. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to The Glossy Podcast. See you next week.